You're listening to a podcast from Why Not a Woman? Celebrating women in public and private life in Ireland, 1918 to 2018. The Women's History Association of Ireland's annual conference for 2018. The conference took place in Dublin Castle on the 15th of December and was supported by the Department of Culture, Heritage and the Gaeltacht. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. This podcast features the second panel at the conference, Women's Material Culture. The panel was Mona Holm from the International Association for Women's Museums, Sinead McCool from the Department of Culture, Heritage and the Gaeltacht, Kate Cunningham from the Women's Museum of Ireland and Dr Emily Mark Fitzgerald from University College Dublin. The discussion was chaired by Dr John Bowman. Now, we're talking about collecting uh, and presenting women's material culture. Um, And we have four very distinguished speakers. Um, I'm in no position to tell them, which was going to be my first point, that the duration of their papers is important because we do need time for questions. When we take questions at the conclusion of this, um, I'm happy to take individual questions to individual speakers. So I'm not going to necessarily expect all of them to answer any of the questions, but if, if, if those of you have, have uh, general questions, then you're also uh, welcome to put them to the entire panel. Um, let me introduce, first of all, uh, Mona Holm. She's an art historian and educator with uh, an expertise in um, women's history, gender studies, and museology. Since 2000, she's been the curator of the Women's Museum in Norway, project manager of various exhibitions on women's history, and is co-founder of the International Association of Women's Museums and president of that body since 2015. Would you welcome Mona Holm, Women's Museums International Reflections. Um, Yes, thank you very much. Um, Well, dear sisters and friends, it is a great pleasure to be here. Thank you to the Women's History Association of Ireland Uh, to all organizers and hosts for this fabulous symposium. 100 years ago, the Irish people elected a woman as a member of parliament, and this deserves a huge celebration. Such milestones are of high importance for anyone, everyone striving to make women's history visible. We need celebrations and we need milestones to keep moving forward. I am invited here as the chairwoman of the International Association of Women's Museums. I speak on behalf of our members from all over the world, who you can see some of here on this picture from our very first international meeting in Meran, Italy, in 2008. We are grateful for this opportunity to tell about our our organization and about how women's museums work and why we exist. Why not a woman goes also for the museum world. As women, we find very little of our history in the majority of museums. I will illustrate this with some examples from my own country. In 1992, the first academic research on gender representation in Norwegian museums was made. PhD uh, Kari Gordre Losnedal found that women were highly underrepresented in all museums analyzed. As a conclusion, she stated 
that to be able to overcome this democratic problem, the museum sector had to make great changes to incorporate women's life and work in all the museum practices. In addition, proper women's museums needed to be established. This was from 1992. Almost 30 years later, Norwegian politicians like to call our country world champion in gender equality, while in competition with Sweden and Denmark. However, another question is if it, our museums have overcome their gender problems. Last year, I made a research on, sec on a selection of Norwegian museum exhibitions, and I will briefly show you some findings. This photo is from an exhibition about the Norwegian traveler's history. There is no reason for this topic not to be gender dem democratically treated. But what happens? Here in this picture, you see uh, objects telling about the traveler's uh, artisanship. On the picture to the left, you can see one, the only vitrine showing traditional women's handcraft. In the middle and to the right, you see some of the many vitrines showing men's handcraft. The misrepresentation repeats itself in the exhibition texts. Women's work is reduced to the term textile work. There is hardly anything about different techniques, materials, patterns, etc. Men's traditional crafts are explained too roughly. Uh, the next photo is from an exhibition about Norwegians' use of nature for recreation and work. The topic should also be easily gender democratically treated, but this is far from the case. The use of gender roles is old-fashioned, and women are hardly included in the vast outdoor settings. However, in the kitchen section, from where this is taken, where the curators should show how natural resources are used in people's homes. They suddenly turn modern. They choose to give men the principal characters, like this big picture of chefs winning a competition. This photograph is from the same exhibition and section as the former of the chefs. Here, a woman is finally given an important role and place. But what happens? The curators decides to give the picture the following text. Edward Johnson is having dinner with his wife, Caroline, as company. <laughs> okay, many of us in this uh, here, we instantly see the woman as the subject here in this picture. It is obvious that she has been cooking and served dinner and is happy about the result. An appropriate text would be, great atmosphere when Caroline Johnson has served her husband Edward dinner. Right? <laughs> the complete result of my research was discouraging. I knew beforehand that the situation was not good but I did think we had improved more since 1992. Apparently, 
There are mechanisms keeping women away from the museum exhibitions, even in gender equality champion countries like Norway. And indeed, this problem is why brave women from different countries all over the world, independently, and several of them without knowing about each other, have founded specific museums to tell about women's history and culture from women's own perspectives. What we want to do is to give women a history and a proper room for their own stories. This seems like such an obvious and fair objective to have, but we have all experienced the fact that challenging the conventional and patriarchal way of telling history provokes quite a lot of people. We have even heard stories about severe and cruel reactions to our colleagues' work in some of our, our, the countries. Today there are, as far as we know, 85 women's and gender museums around the world. 18 of these are virtual or online museums, and there are 37 initiatives to make new women's museums. These numbers are from September this year. These museums are quite different from each other. Anyway, what we all have in common is that we work to be able to give women a history, and we have many grateful visitors all over the world. Ten years ago, most women's museums did not know about each other. In 2008, the museum, Women's Museum in Senegal and in Meran, Italy, changed this when they arranged the very first international conference of women's museums. Their great effort created the most wonderful result. It gave us all the possibility to be part of a community. So in fact, our organization also uh, has an anniversary this year, 10 years. Um, we in instantly understood the importance of keeping in contact, contact through a network. Discovering that we had colleagues all over the world was most inspiring, and it gave us strength to continue our work in our local communities. The network has, from the start, worked to make valid definitions of women's museums and their tasks. It is a continuous process, and a new version of will be fulfilled at our next international conference in 2020. Meanwhile, most women's museums comply with the following description made during an EU project called the She Culture that finished in 2015. And I will give you some of the tasks we formulated then. Women's museums, we want to promote women's visibility in history and culture to support policies addressing gender issues, to take political positions on diversity, gender sensitivity, and social inclusion for minorities, to promote a gender perspective in other museums, to acquire, conserve, research, communicate, and exhibit the tangible and intangible heritage of women's history, life, and culture. To, to promote a different perspective on the world, history and culture, and to develop professional research on gender-related issues. And 
practice gender-oriented communication. We also consider ourselves to be active partners in local, national, and international networks of museums and related cultural, scientific, and social institutions. So you see, we have great ambitions. <laughs> in spite of our differences, women's museums in general have some common practices. Usually, the museums are clear about telling the audience who the curators of the exhibitions are and of their purpose. Quite a few museum, women's museums collaborate with artists, and this helps to make the public understand that an exhibition is an interpretation and not an objective truth, which is also often the case in museum exhibitions that people think that. This photo shows the work of the artist Susan Bonds as a part of a big suffrage exhibition at the Women's Museum in Bonn, Germany. Other ways of presenting histories, many versions, is to give the public a possibility to see different perspectives in the same exhibition. This is an example from a section dealing with heroines and traitors during Second World War at the Norwegian Museum. All women's museums regularly uh, get the same kind of questions. The most frequent ones are, why are there women's museums? What do you do in a women's museum? Why isn't there a men's museum? Is it allowed for men to enter? Isn't a women's museum excluding? In fact, uh, women's museums do all the time have to justify and explain our own existence. This can sometimes feel a little tiring, but is indeed very healthy. All museums should have to discuss their reason for being on a regular basis. The Women's Museum in Meran has made their own attempt to meet these questions. On their entrance wall, they have painted this sign created by women for everyone. We presume that everyone is interested in half our history, of course, not only women. In 2012, in Alice Springs, Australia, we took the important step and founded the International Association of Women's Museums, shortened IAWM. It was registered in Bonn, Germany, by our first chairwoman, Bettina Bab, as you see here in the middle. Uh, IAWM has board members representing all continents. Our coordinator and driving force has since the beginning been Astrid Schoenweger, which unfortunately is not on this picture, uh, and the administration seat is located in Meran. Uh, we organize international conferences with general assemblies every four years. In between, we encourage museums to organize continental meetings. This October, the Women's Museum in Istanbul organized a European-Asian conference. Uh, this served us well and made it possible to plan for the next international conferences and for common projects. We founded IAWM to have an organization that can provide contact between different women's and gender museums and others working with the same issues. We try to keep a list of all existing women's museums in the world 
and to offer them membership. IAWM can offer a platform of communication, interchange of ideas and of best practice. We create possibilities to meet through our conferences, as well as opportunities to find partners for future projects. We are happy to welcome new institutions and private persons as members. We have different kinds of memberships, uh, and here you can see uh, some ways to get in touch with us. Uh, web pages, social media platforms, etc. You can also come and talk to me later and I'll give you some things uh, if you are interested. Our members uh, are now 53 institutions from all over the world. And in addition, we have several individual members that have joined us and support the network. I will end now by thanking you again for inviting me. Um, our organization uh, is happy to continue collaborating with Irish institutions and individuals. It is important to remember that we need to find courage and to inspire others to do the same. Um, we have to be role models for new colleagues and new generations and help them to find courage to keep up the work. It is a continuous process. We cannot rest <laughs> in this. Congratulations to the Irish people with your important centenary. Let's all continue to give our girls and everyone else a possibility to find female role models in our history. Thank you very much, Mona. Our second, our second speaker is Sinead McCool, Irish historian, broadcaster and exhibition curator, author of a number of books, including Easter Widows and No Ordinary Women, and she's also the curator of the Pop-Up Women's Museum, 100 Years of Women in Politics and Public Life Over the Past Century, which is in the Coach House in Dublin Castle, and her paper is Women and Material Culture in Ireland in the Past Century. Sinead McCool. Good morning, um everybody and um, I'm delighted to be taking part in the session um, Collecting Women's Material Culture, Who's Collecting? As you're all aware, um, I um, organised this exhibition on behalf of uh, the Department of Culture, Heritage and the Gaeltacht along with Sarah Ann Buckley and I'm delighted to have in this session Mona Holm, who's the International Association for Women's Museums, and Kate Cunningham, who was one of the cur curators and creators of the Online Women's Museum of Ireland, and of course Emily Mark Fitzgerald, who's uh, part from um, her role in, in um, UCD, is obviously involved in the archiving the eighth um, to collect material from the recent um, uh, re referendum. I, I really welcome the opportunity to work with the Women's History Association as one of the actions that would take place alongside. Um, the Department of Culture, Heritage and the Gaeltacht's centenary um, exhibition and centenary events for the, uh, to mark to, uh, 2018, all part of the uh, Decade of Centenaries um, activities. And as some of you may know, I'm a member of the Commemorations Unit. And um, in that, when we were looking at the Women's Strand, in particular looking at the, the, the second decade of commemorations, it was very important that we looked at um, how women um, were looked at um, uh, uh, continuing on from what we had done in 2016. 
on the 6th of February this year, um, we launched the programme um, when uh, it was at the moment when the Representation of People Act was passed, which gave the, wi- the, the, the vote to women over 30, as we know, who were university educated or those who met with a property qualification, and all men, of course, over the age of 21. Uh, last night was the, the marking of the, the general election, um, 100 years since the 14th of December 1918, when, uh, uh, when 17 women stood for election to the British um, Houses of Parliament uh, in Westminster. And of course, two of those people who stood for election were Irish, Countess de Markovich and Winnie Carney. We know that Winnie Carney was not elected, but neither were the others, uh, other women, uh, many of whom who had been very active in the suffrage movement in England. So it's a really a celebratory moment that we're recording the election of Countess de Markovich. But what was important for the purposes of putting together a pop-up museum, it was very important to explain what happened next, because of many of you will know that the, that the Countess, while she was elected and, and um, became a member of the Cabinet in 1919, um, her role in the Cabinet was not secure. And uh, um, when it came time um, for um, her to be um, placed again, her, 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 her position in the, in the Cabinet was um, demoted. Um, I don't intend to to give a, a sort of a history lecture here um, in in relation to what happened around this. Um, although I did um, include some of the information there um, for benefit of, of Mona, who is visiting um, here. Um, I think what was really important for doing this session in relation to collecting women's um, material culture and who's collecting was with the decision to do a hundred years of women in politics and public life and to put like, together a pop-up museum, which is on in the coach house, uh, um, um, and it's going to run from now until the end of January there, and then they, it will be doing a touring exhibition throughout the country to Munster um, and Ulster and Connacht. Um, what's really important about it was that that exhibition would look at the years leading from uh, 18 to 2018 and show the record of of women's participation. And with the Countess losing um, her cabinet position almost immediately, so 1921, she doesn't have a cabinet position anymore, although she's still Minister of Labour. Um, and then it's then 60 years, as many of us in this room are familiar with, before Maura Gagan Quinn became the second cabinet minister in 1979. So what I was looking at for was trying to explain the story of how that happened. And obviously, in relation to the material and the work that I do curatorially, it's about the gathering of the record. And one of the things that's most interesting in relation to the Countess is that Constance Markovich um, would have actually had um, enough material remaining to put together a museum completely dedicated to her. So the National Museum have the material... Um, for example, her sketches that she that she drew when she was in um, Holloway Prison. They have um, and they have her election literature. Some material is in the exhibition. Kilmainham Jail have a bag. Um, Lissadell um, has a collection. Museums around the country have various items of clothing. So there's an awful lot of material, both written um, and also um, uh, objects that that have survived in relation to her. But after that point. The, 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 the collections don't contain uh, huge amounts of material. Kilmainham Jail, for example, has a lot of material related to uh, women who were imprisoned um, in the War of Independence, and some numbers of them, and uh, particularly in the Civil War. 
but the, the those women who who were imprisoned at that time, um, some of them had been um, uh, had been TDs, but the, but there's not a huge amount of material even related to them, a book, a print, uh, the odd photograph. So of Cato Callaghan, of Mary McSweeney, there's some letters. Um, but what was really important was to look at the women that we didn't know anything about. Now, in um, 2000, um, uh, Maeve uh, McNamara and Pascal Mooney put together a, a biographical dictionary leading up to the year 2000, to the millennium, um, in relation to the women, and put together a, a, a dictionary of that and did collect some photographs at that time. But there were a lot of women that, that came from the later period beyond the 1920s, beyond our civil war and war of independence, who didn't have material at all. So what I did over the last two and a half years is I gathered that material. I put together um, a, a timeline of events way, relating to women and just sort of did a feminization of Irish history. You'll see if you enter into the, the coach house the way that it's laid out. So it's laid out chronologically, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. 70s, 80s, 90s, and the, to up to the present. But how it's, how it's worked is that in the first 21 women, and that's what I'm particularly interested in talking about that material culture, is to have images and items that reflect them. So Kate Callahan's um, you know, Kate Celtic revival dress is on display, which is um, belonging to the Kilmory Independence Museum. Um, we have the an early cupboard that represents the the, the starting and the fledgling state, um, because it has containers for both Doyle and Shannon on either side. I'm not really explaining that very well. Um, there's there's a, an air woman's uniform that represent the women who, who emigrated from Ireland. And then obviously we were looking at the, the most powerful women in public life. And of course, that is the religious. One of the jobs that I did as part of this, um, uh, this research for this exhibition was looking at where women went to school. And that was really important to understand that, that the, the common denominator between all the women who were elected, the 114 TDs that were elected in particular, were all um, uh, they were all educated to the to secondary school, with the exception of Mary Reynolds, the ever popular Mary Reynolds. But in in place of her time in secondary school, Mary Reynolds had emigrated to America and returned. And it seems to be the confidence that she got while she was in America, running a, a, a you know a boarding house with her husband, that actually meant that she um, that, that that she had the um, sort of the the confidence to enter into the public arena. Um, and, but what, what was important to, to describe is to personalise these women and so how it works in the exhibition is you've got memorial cards. But what was shocking to me, and I suppose so is in the very short time that I have to give you a flavour of what was achieved, was that, they, that um, to just to reiterate, that apart from the Countess, where people collected material, even um, as we go in through time, there wasn't the same interest in collecting personal items from those the, those. Um, uh, those women, um, and what does that say about uh, if the most important women um, in our country didn't gather an archive, then uh, we have to look at that in terms of women's history in general and to look for those items. So it's uh, lecture literature, some clothing, uh, some badges, uh, um, and some items, uh, personal items. But I wasn't finding pieces of jewellery. I wasn't finding um, many objects that, in the way that I was expecting that were actually um, uh, the, the sort of material that we find in museum relating to their male card counterparts. So I hope that gives you a flavour and that you'll enjoy seeing the, the, the museum. And as I said, the Pop-Up Museum, which is the Department of Culture, Heritage and the Gale Talks, centenary uh, moment, as it were, is going to be in Dublin Castle until the end of January, and then it's going to be touring the country, um, venues in Munster, um, Ulster and Connacht. 
Um, I think it's really important to sort of say that this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This material that has been gathered from the personal collections of the 114 TDs um, with the help of their families um, is only on show for this period in time. Um, uh, and I think that it's important for us to reflect at this particular moment, at, a, at the 100-year mark, what is the, um, the, the, the contrast between what women are collecting um, and what, what they, what are, what's currently in our museums and in our collections and in our archives related to the male archive? And it's also important to remember also that, that um, as people see themselves through the lens of the historic person like Countess de Markovic, it's important to reflect that even though she was imprisoned, you know, moved house, um, all these different things happened to her in her life, which were a complete upheaval. That preservation of the archive continued because she knew um, her, her legacy and so did those around her. But I think it's important to say that, that the women for the, for the later period also had a legacy and it's important to remember them and to also reflect on um, on, on what, what was collected. And I just hope that, that it's going to be part of the discussion around the conference um, and that this can, discussion um, goes beyond uh, this session. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Sinead. Um, Kate Cunningham is the co-founder and director of the Women's Museum of Ireland, which was launched in 2013 and which is a virtual museum. I know that because I was looking it up when I should have been here. She's currently the marketing manager with Dublin International Film Festival and has worked in creative industries across Ireland and Europe. Her paper is Who We Are, Origins and Future of the Online Women's Museum of Ireland. Um, thank you very much. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. The Women's Museum has been in existence, I suppose, since 2012, and so um, it's a real honour for us to be on the same stage as um, some of these people. I'm going to give a brief overview, I suppose, of where we came from, um, the work that we've been doing over the last couple of years, and the hopes we have for the future. This is essentially where the Women's Museum of Ireland started, which as, uh, is as a slightly snarky Facebook comment by Jean Sutton, um, who was the original brains behind the Women's Museum of Ireland, where she said, can we start a campaign to turn the Parliament of College Green into a women's museum and troll the trolls? But I am also very serious. Um, you can see there that the third uh, comment down there is myself, and I said, I'll donate my next paycheck. So, um, unfortunately for myself and Jean, I suppose this was 2012, and we had both just graduated from Trinity College, and paychecks were few and far between at the time. But um, this really was the start of um, a really big project for us. Um, this thread went on for a couple of days and quite a few comments, and you can see a couple of the suggestions there. The Kitty O'Shea Bold Corner, Jean's Crash, which she had planned to call Article 41.2, um, but the result was that a couple of days later, I messaged Jean and I said, I think we should do this. And so a couple of days later, uh, myself and Jean sat on the floor of her rented house in Clontarf and we thought about how we could make this happen. The original plan was really for this to be a satirical exhibition. Um, we would have a lot of kitsch, the Mary Robinson tapestry, things on display, um, a lot of the Irish mammy type stuff that had come about um, in the years since. But the more we looked into it, um, the less funny it really became, that we couldn't find really any information in the public domain for people like us who are not historians but who are interested in women's history. And what also became clear is that um, women's history was not going to fit into one uh, exhibition over a weekend in Temple Bar. And so we decided we would continue with the project, but make it bigger. And it became, I suppose, an organisation um, that first weekend rather than just an exhibition. What you see on the right is the first few iterations of the uh, logo of the Women's Museum. 
Um, we very much overstated our position initially by calling ourselves the National Women's Museum of Ireland, um, which we thought was so outrageous that it would at least get attention. Um, but the more seriously we took things, you can't see it on the left there or on the right there, uh, we dropped the National Women's Museum, or the national part at least, and we became what is now the Women's Museum of Ireland, with a very beautiful logo um, designed by Connor Whelan. Um, the first thing we did really um, was recognise that myself and Jean were not historians, that we needed some extra um, additional support. And so we took on board Zoe Coleman, uh, Holly Furlong, um, who both have a background in history. And so the original founding members were four young women um, just out of college. At the height of our activity um, in 2014, we had eight, um, I suppose, people working on the museum. Although it's important to note that there were eight young women all doing um, a huge amount of unpaid work. And today, in 2018, we're back to our core team of four. The first activity we undertook was um, our flash mob of suffragettes in Dublin city centre, where we um, marched around Dublin and asked people to support a museum for women in the style of Votes for Women. Um, you can see here um, the gals, as it were, um, uh, sitting on top of the provost who said that the last thing he wanted to see in Trinity was women in higher education. And so um, that was our response to that. The response we got was really huge, and it really reiterated to us um, that there was a need and an interest for something like this. Obviously, the Women's History Association of Ireland have been doing fantastic work um, documenting this, but what was needed was a non-academic approach to this and something that captured the public's imagination. Um, over the initial six months, we were represented in Morning Ireland, RT News Talk, the Irish Times, the Irish Independent, and if nothing else, that gave us the reassurance that at least we weren't barking up a completely mad tree when it came to this. Um, and that what people did want was a Women's Museum of Ireland in some shape or form. The first activity that we um, really took seriously and undertook, I suppose, or the first project was um, the launch exhibition during International Women's Week in 2013. Um, and this was Monsters of Creation, Snapshots of Women in Higher Education. Um, I suppose we had just come from higher education and we thought this was um, something that really deeply inter interested us, as our position as women who had come through the system. Um, this also set the tone for what we were, um, I suppose, the ethos and the structure of the museum going forward. In many ways, our lack of resources um, became a huge asset to us because what we did was crowdsource information. Um, we reached out to people to, um, through social media, through the media, to ask them to submit um, their own memories and their own artefacts of their journey um, through higher education or the women in their life. Um, it was hugely successful. Um, because as we know, often the traditional approach to history does not represent women's history. And so what we got, first of all, was great support from the archives, um, all of the uh, universities, um, the ICA, everybody, unfortunately except for UCD, wouldn't give us any information because they'd never heard of us before, which at the time was a fair enough point. Um, but you'll see there um, UCC Professor Mary Ryan, who's the first um, professor in Ireland and also in Great Britain, you have the ironing class from St. Angela's and also um, the higher education access students from Trinity. But what we also got and what I think really captured people's imagination and interest was the submissions from the public. So on the right there, you have the woman who is the first woman in her family to graduate um, from university as a nurse. Down the bottom, you have Ella Hassett, who submitted her own photo. Ella graduated the same year as me from Trinity, and her and her mother featured in the exhibition as the first and only women in their family to go through higher education. And then we had quite a lot of um, the women who got married 
in the final years of their education, which I think was really interesting because it really represented what college and university meant for a lot of women in the past. And so you have the rowing team there celebrating marriage. We launched in the Long Room Hub. Um, the exhibition was hugely successful. Um, initially, we were due to run for two weeks. We were launched by a former Supreme Court judge, Catherine McGuinness, and also uh, visited by Christine Lagarde, which is very exciting. Um, and we ended up extending the exhibition by over a month. It still lives under my bed uh, in a very survive, uh, <laughs> in a very secure archival uh, system, I'm sure, wrapped in paper. Um, but really, it gave us a re uh, an interesting and successful launchpad into which we turned the uh, website, which is www.womensmuseumofireland.ie. Um, the idea behind the museum was that we would exist as an online museum and then have pop-up exhibitions and events throughout the year. Um, currently, the museum stands at 49 exhibits, so we try and keep the structure of a museum um, by showing exhibits. Each one represents a different woman or a different period um, in social history. You can see there there's a breadth of things from activism to architecture. Um, we have a blog which um, updates um, people on the various um, things happening around Ireland and Europe when it comes to women's history. And we act as an educational resource that still is extremely um, valuable, I think, and we know that from the number of teachers and schools that get in touch with us. Um, the website, I suppose, um, is a huge amount of work, which is something that we naively didn't expect. We take, again, crowdsourced information. Anyone can submit research, although we really expect people to be at least researching at master's level. And um, I suppose at the height of our powers, we had four copy editors and proofreaders and researchers fact-checking everything and running it through a fairly rigorous process to make sure that things were credited correctly. Um, we also have our first exhibit in Irish, and the hope would be that going forward we would have the exhibition and the exhibitions and the website as a fully bilingual resource that people can download as PDFs, use as classroom resources, and grow that. The uh, next project, and I suppose the current project that we're working on, and we have been working on for the last three years, is the Women's Map of Dublin. We decided to map the city of Dublin um, according by women's history. Um, you may have noticed, but there's not a huge amount of uh, representation when it comes to street names, bridges, statues around the city to represent the contribution that women have made to Irish and cultural and social history. Again, we return to our format of crowdsourcing the information um, with the hashtag Women of Dublin. Um, what this does, aside from help us on a resource point of view, is it really gives people um, a sense of ownership over history, um, and women's history in particular, it came as no surprise to us, I suppose, that people are incredibly proud of the women in their family, in their communities, in their neighbourhoods. And so um, they wanted to tell the stories and see those stories. Again, we had a um, really great response to this project. Um, of course, you had the usuals. Um, shouldn't we set up a men's museum in the interests of gender equality? Could argue there's quite a few of those around already. Um, and then looking through the hashtag, most of the suggestions wouldn't be considered noteworthy in and of themselves. Thank you very much. However, um, the response from the public was really fantastic. We had a huge amount of submissions from institutions, from individuals, people who wanted to tell the story of people in their family. We trended. And in the end, we had over 200 submissions from the public. The result of that is the women's map of Dublin. The um, long-term plan is for this map to grow and be a living resource, whereby it is... Um, people can consistently submit and it will live online as a resource where you can look around your own neighbourhood, the parts of Dublin that you know and love, and find out 
but the women who contributed to those areas. This um, on the screen is the shortlist, um, and this will be, um, in the end, uh, transformed into a physical map that you can walk around the city with. Um, you can see that it's colour-coded by the, con the kind of types of contributions and the areas that people worked in. So you have social history, art history, um, sport, politics, activism. Um, and that's just a little bit of uh, a sense of the, the breadth, I suppose, of people um, and institutions. You see at the very end, you have the last Magdalene Laundry in Ireland. So there was a mention there of dark history, and I think it's important for us that we're representing the kind of the broad swathe of history that um, women have been involved in. What we've been working on since then is this short film, which I'm not actually entirely sure I can show via this presentation. Uh, <laughs> Um, I don't think Sarah Ann is in the room, unfortunately, where we will be going out to ask for support for this um, project. There are 4,180 4, streets, 24 bridges, 110 statues in Dublin, and almost none of them are named after women. And so that is a huge capital city on which we have a very, very low uh, footprint in terms of the contribution that we've made. Um, like I said, people are proud of their city, and what it does, I think, when you learn about the history of your city, particularly when it's um, extremely relevant to you, and that's again where the crowdsourcing comes in, is that it gives you a great sense of ownership over the place that you live, and also it gives you a sense of power. I think um, I can speak for all of us involved in the museum when I say that learning about the types of women that have um, come before us and contributed to the different professional areas that we work in gives us our own sense of ownership over the contributions and the impact that we can make in those. So plans for the future. Um, the first thing I think that's really important for us is structure. Like I mentioned, we are four young women um, in our late 20s who work on this project alongside our own careers. Um, when the project initially started, I quit my job and worked on it for six months unpaid. And that's where we saw a big kind of boost, I suppose, in the activity. But that wasn't sustainable, and it hasn't been. And us asking um, young women to work on this unpaid also does not set a great precedent for the kind of um, structure that you want an institution like this to have. Um, when we looked um, across the women's museums across Europe, and I was lucky enough to attend the conference in Bonn a couple of years ago, um, we're no different, or we're certainly not unusual when it comes to the type of structure and funding that there is in women's museums in Europe. Um, most women's museums, the average level of funding they have is between 2,000 and 6,000 euros, and that is for full-time women's museums that operate out of physical buildings in their cities. The average number of um, employed full-time staff in a women's museum is one. Um, so we are certainly coming in at least around that average, but that's just not good enough. Um, when we went to the Women's Museum Conference, most of the people we met were working on a voluntary basis on what is an extremely important historical and national project, I think, in each of our countries. Um, so for us, the main thing, I think, in the next few years is to look at the structure of how we um, have the museum. I think it's essential for us to get to a stage where we're at least paying somebody full-time or part-time to support the project. The next level, then, is support. Um, we have looked at crowdfunding, we have um, you know, funded, fundraised our own small pieces of uh, funding to support the project. But by and large, to pay somebody a full-time salary requires a level of support that needs to go beyond that. And I think if Ireland is serious about having a women's project, a women's history project, that there needs to be um, 
a serious commitment of support there to, like, to support the people who work in this area. And then finally, sustainability. So we would like to see the website grow. We would like to become a main um, and a major resource for secondary school and primary school teachers because I know from our anecdotal evidence that that is something that they need when it comes to women's history. We would like to expand to have the women's map expand and be available to tourists and also to domestic visitors who are interested in the, women, in the history of Dublin. And we would like to expand it to the other major cities in the country. And then finally, I think there is definitely um, interest and uh, perhaps a need for a physical space for something like the uh, Women's Museum of Ireland. It may not necessarily come in the form of our uh, um, organisation. I think there is need, as you say, for a, a space for women's history. And whether that is um, absorbed in a committed way into the national institutions or exists on its own is very important. As Mona has shown, when things um, are represented in the national institutions and in a traditional historic historical telling sense, women's history is not always represented correctly. And that is why, despite all of the questions, women's museums are needed. Um, I hope at some stage to be able to show you our uh, video. It's a really beautiful piece of work directed by Natasha Wall. But in the meantime, um, I think that is the plan for the future, is that we can hit those three targets and create um, an organisation that is sustainable and that can uh, inspire people and support women's historians into the future. Thank you very much. Um, thank, thank you, thank you, Kate. Um, Dr. Emily Mark Fitzgerald is Associate Professor in the School of Art, History and Cultural Policy at UCD. Her research interests include Irish art history, visual culture, museum heritage studies, and she currently represents art history on the Historical Studies Committee of the Royal Irish Academy. She helped launch Archiving the Eighth, and that's the title of her paper today, Archiving the Eighth Project. Great. Thanks very much, John. Uh, and thanks, everybody, for coming out today again on a wet Saturday morning to hear us rabbit on about museums and heritage and collection and these topics that are all very close to our hearts. As I'm sure everyone in this room knows, this year in the Republic of Ireland, we witnessed one of the momentous events in Irish social and political history, which was the repeal of the Eighth Amendment of the Irish Constitution, overturning the prohibition of abortion in an overwhelming popular national referendum that was held on the 25th of May. And as you know, the legislation came into effect this week. But I'm here to speak to you today about a project that's concerned with the, anticipating the legacy of the referendum and to talk a little bit about the work that's already underway to preserve, collect, and uh, interpret the campaigns, which is the Archiving the Eighth Project. As I'm sure many of, you, many of you in this room will know and likely experience directly, the referendum campaign was fiercely fought by both the yes and the no camps, and Irish media, society, and the lives of many individuals was consumed with the referendum for many months, not to mention the groundwork that had been laid by campaign groups and individuals for decades leading up to the referendum itself. And given the historic nature of the vote and the huge levels of participation in its aftermath, attention immediately turned to how it might be documented, preserved, and interpreted in the future. And a few of us uh, on Twitter, it's interesting to kind of see the strands of social media which are popping up now about how the effective this can be also as an organizing tool. Literally the day after the referendum, a number of us started talking about how cultural organizations might or could respond to the referendum campaigns. 
Now, this is a subject that I personally have a great deal of interest in, um, both as an academic who works in commemoration and heritage, and also as one of the directors of the Irish Museums Association for, over, for, for about 10 years. I just stepped down this year. And you can see here, um, obviously, just as a, a sort of visual indicator, of course, our world was visually consumed with the referendum campaign. It wasn't that long ago, folks, remember. Of course, the way in which our daily, uh, even paths to work, um, was, was surrounded by all of this uh, activity. In terms of some of these conversations here, you can see screenshots of, of some of these conversations immediately after, after the referendum, which began to coalesce under the hashtag archiving the eighth. And this was quite an organic thing. And immediately then, this became populated with organizations and individuals, as you see here, detailing what collecting perhaps was already underway or might be undertaken, or also offering materials that could potentially be collected or even asking for advice, right? As things, posters were beginning to come down, as all of this effort had been ongoing, again, a concern about preserving and having this as part of both local, regional, and national records. So on a bus traveling from Belfast to Dublin, I'd gone up to Belfast for the weekend and having all these conversations and going back and forward with everybody over Twitter and Facebook over the weekend, um, I set up a really quick uh, WordPress website called archivingtheeighth.wordpress.com. And this whole network project then, which now exists, was born. And this was only really an initial attempt to try and consolidate some of the energy and interest around preserving the stories and experiences, the documents and the visual and material culture that the referendum had produced, to try and put some shape and organization around this activity, to also try and avoid duplication, and to bring together the many folks who had a deep interest in this activity. Now, in recent years, the concept of what's called rapid response collecting and archiving has emerged in what we in, in the sector call the GLAM sector, which is a wonderful kind of acronym, but really just stands for galleries, libraries, archives, and museums. Now, the notion of rapid response collecting involves institutional efforts to collect material in real time. This involves collecting material that's generated by contemporary events, which is often ephemeral or sometimes vulnerable to disappearance. It's also a way by means museums seek to make their collections meaningful and current to their communities and also anticipate future researcher needs. And these forms of, of what's termed rapid response collecting have been pioneered by institutions such as the V&A Museum, uh, who have collected objects such as the pussy hat used in the Women's March, and also objects like the first 3D printed gun. And coincidentally, actually, the curator from the design department of the v and uh, uh, Museum had been here for the Irish Museums Association annual conference literally just a few weeks before the referendum. So it was already sort of in our minds about how we might map this sort of model of, of collecting to some of the things that were happening in Ireland. Another example of this form of rapid response collecting has been the Documenting Ferguson project. Um, this is a project which is a partnership between Washington University and St. Louis area organizations and universities in the United States, which, as you can see in their own words, provides a freely available resource that seeks to preserve and make accessible the digital media captured and created by community members following the shooting death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in, on the August 9th, 2014. The project has the ultimate goal of providing diverse perspectives on the events in Ferguson and the resulting social dialogue, all of which, of course, is part of the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States. And this particular project utilizes the Omica uh, platform, which is an open source form of software 
to present an online crowdsourced repository of images, audio, video, and stories, all of which have been uh, collected and assembled in a really short period of time. Now, both of these cases, both documenting Ferguson and what the VNA has been doing, new institutional and collaborative protocols have had to be debated and developed. Collections procedures for museums tend to be slow and not often geared towards quick contemporary acquisitions. Collecting politically contentious material carries its own challenges, let alone deciding how to display or interpret it. And also the ethics and the permissions surrounding how acquisition can be unclear. But this is a vibrant and growing field of museum and archival work. At the recent um, Association of Museums conference that was up in Belfast uh, for the first time, it was in Northern Ireland this year, the UK Museums Association, there are many also kind of panels and conversations about different forms of this work that are being undertaken. This is also captured here in Ireland um, in a New York Times article in June 2018 that highlighted the work of our colleague Brenda Malone, who's a curator at the National Museum of Ireland, in terms of the museum's work collecting political posters and ephemera related to the 8th. So with the support of the director of the National Library of Ireland, uh, Sandra Collins, who's been very supportive of us from the beginning, our network of Archiving the 8th met for the first time last July. And we had 40 archivists, academics, museum professionals, and activists who met in the National Library of Ireland with this ambition of sharing knowledge of what we were doing and creating a network that would begin to organize some of this activity happening around the country. And also to identify where some of the gaps might be and what were some of the things that we needed to do immediately. So for example, the National Library has focused on digitally archiving 100 websites that represent both sides of the campaigns and they also collect leaflets and posters and things like that. The National Museum, as you can see, collects posters, banners, and other ephemera. And local authority libraries, some of them anyway, have been collecting materials which are particular to their locales. But as I say, we also needed to start to identify what were the key stories around the referendum that we might be in danger of losing, particularly as campaign groups disbanded, and also were there voices missing from this endeavor. Um, so, so, for example, one of the primary strategies of repeal canvassers was the sharing of their own experiences and of storytelling, both offline and online, in social media as well as in person. And this obviously proved to be a very effective tool of persuasion. This was borne out in the opinion polls after the referendum that you can see here, which indicated the factors why people voted, with 43% responding uh, that it was uh, the personal stories which appeared in the media. 34% experiences of people they knew, and 10% posters. Efforts like the In My Shoes Facebook page, which you see here on the right-hand side, shared the difficult and often traumatic stories of women forced to travel to terminate their pregnancies for a variety of reasons. So it's clear that these personal connections, the doorstop conversations that they provoked, had a powerful effect on the way that citizens voted. And yet these forms of online communication, as well as canvassers' own personal experiences in undertaking this work, is especially difficult to capture and preserve. Who or what organization would step up to ensure these stories and their impact did not simply disappear? A second challenge and then also opportunity includes how artists and designers played a pivotal role in shaping national conversations and producing some of the most influential images and events of the campaign. Amongst these were the repeal mural that was created by the street artist Mazer on the side of Project Arts Center, painted over not once but twice, first due to a planning objection, and the second, the controversial intervention of the charity regulator. 
However, its removal only served to heighten uh, the visibility of the image, and it became one of the iconic symbols of the campaign. Designers wrote in also contributing the repeal jumper. See, even members of our audience are still wearing them. Necklaces, elements of campaign design. And artists were at the forefront of the movement throughout, taking a central role in coordinating many public protests. And much artistic work engaged heavily with women's issues, with bodily autonomy, and the Irish state and its histories of oppression. How can we ensure that aspects of this physical material and also the rituals which accompanied them will also be preserved and collected? The National Irish Visual Arts Library, which is located at NCAD, is specifically collecting design work related to the campaign, as well as some of the records of the making of this artist's material. And beyond these acts of collection, how can we envisage the future interpretation and display of dissent, protest, and change? Many other concerns were voiced then as part of our meetings. Um, sorry, here's just a, another image of, of one of these uh, wonderfully kind of visually uh, striking uh, protests. Some of these other stories, and I won't go through all of these, but this gives you a flavor. This is probably only about a third of the list that we kind of collectively came up with as some of the stories that we were keen to ensure will be uh, integrated in some way into future research projects and collections. Oral history, histories, regional and rural representation, LGBTQ perspectives, disability rights groups, etc. I'm not here today to present to you our final solutions because this is very much a work in progress. And we now have a steering group in place that's making progress on a number of key objectives. Our immediate goals include developing a guide for individuals and small groups on material preservation. Also a researcher network and conference that we're planning for next year. And a more developed portal website that can organize and guide future work along these lines. We have significant challenges ahead. Many campaign groups are exhausted or are disappearing. It's also been extremely difficult to source participation from the No campaign, and this is despite outreach efforts that we've made, even though their perspectives and their material are vital for collection purposes. And finally, like many of the projects you've heard about uh, today, Archiving the Eighth is an entirely voluntary effort. It's fueled by the passionate belief its steering group and wider network has in its importance and also the professional responsibility that many of us feel to step up to this challenge. My particular job on the committee, apart from its overall coordination, is to help us source and apply for modest funding for our network efforts, some of which I've already been doing. Should anybody wish to speak to me about this further, I'll be in the hall. Um, but we're very grateful thus far for the support that we've received, both from the National Library of Ireland and the Royal, uh, Royal Irish Academy, who have hosted us and provided hospitality. And my gratitude also to our wider network and our steering group, the members of which you can see here, representing a very wide range of organizations, both universities and national organizations like the DRI, the NLI, uh, the TMFR Ireland, uh, the Irish Qualitative Dative Archive, etc., who are all giving their time and energy freely to this. Despite our shared efforts, we realize that we have different agendas and priorities. For archivists and museum folks, the focus is on immediate collection or immediate efforts to collect and preserve the visual material culture. For academics, it's to ensure that the multivocality of the campaign, its history, processes, and outcomes are accurately reflected in historical accounts, and that new research work like oral histories will be coordinated and funded. For activists, it's about finding the appropriate destination for valuable material but also that the history and lessons of the campaign can inform and inspire future generations of activists. But what energizes all of us is a belief that this is a story worth telling. From a global perspective, we're inundated daily with news of resurgent nationalisms, of toxic xenophobia, 
and hardening borders. But in ways both small and profound, the Eighth Amendment referendum exemplified the possibilities and the power of participatory democracy, where artistic and cultural activities allowed for voice and individual collection, connection to larger narratives and meanings. It's an example where a national reimagining and reckoning has taken place, fueled in the main by grassroots efforts, not the major political parties, with immense national and social consequences. From my perspective as a university academic, the referendum has produced two other remarkable outcomes, which I'll end on. First, it's galvanized new and existing communities of scholars who are keen to explore the history, dynamics, and outcomes of the referendum and the issues it concerned, whether from the perspective of political science, gender studies, art history, human rights, or the history of activism. Already, myself and my colleagues have noticed an uptick in new thesis proposals and research inquiries into this topic, complementing the research work already underway. And second, it's produced a generation of young people, many of whom are my students, for whom dissent is now normative, and who now believe quite rightly that they can affect change. And this will have profound consequences for the future of political activism in Ireland. And the availability of the history of this referendum will be central in informing those future efforts. So in conclusion, I believe it's the role of cultural institutions and archives to collect and document activism, but also to actively encourage public awareness of how protest is part of our national histories. And this can enhance, then, our ability to imagine alternative futures. Thank you. I'd like to thank all of our speakers for their contributions, and we'll take questions now from the floor. Um, yes, and if you can give us your, covet the unused microphone, and if you give us your name and organization, if any, so we can see the spin, if any. Um, Beth O'Neill, I'm an English PhD student at the University of Limerick, and this question is related to the archiving the eighth project. Um, is the archive merely focused just on, say, the last year of the campaign, or has there been anything extending beyond that? Um, and also, have you been archive archiving any literary works to do with the eighth? Um, that's part of the focus of my research, so I guess it's, I've got a vested interest in the answer. In, in some ways, it's, I suppose it's important to clarify that the Archiving the Eighth isn't a single project. There's not any one single archive that will contain all material that's related to the Eighth Referendum. So really what it's about is, is creating a network of folks who are undertaking this work in their different capacities, of course, because every cultural institution, archive and museum, has different priorities, and the nature of what they collect is different. So really we're talking about um, a group of organizations uh, that, that covers a very wide span. It's not the last year of the referendum by any mm. stretch of the imagination. UCC, for example, has a very large collection of material that's related to the 1983 referendum. So that also is part of this. One of the things that we're hoping to produce is essentially to answer the question that you're asking me, which is a guide to where material related to aspects of the referendum, related to the issue of abortion, are located in different places across Ireland. So the type of literary work that you're referring to, it may be, for example, that some of that material is located in the National Library. It may be that it's lodged in university copyright libraries, like Trinity's Library, for example. So what we're aiming to do is be able to provide a useful guide for research like, researchers like yourselves to be able to access that type of information. Um, we're also, of course, very interested in combi compiling bibliographies of folks who are undertaking research work, and that as well to be sort of a resource for future researchers to be able to draw on. And that would be ideally online since yes. it will keep changing, won't it? Absolutely, keep yeah. Changing. And as I say, you saw our large sort of steering committee, and there's, we already have subcommittees. All the best work happens in the subcommittees, quite frankly, <laughs> right? Um, and folks already are undertaking that work 
at the moment. So as I say, this is something which is an informal organization, but we've been meeting regularly to, to organize that activity and to make the website the conduit of that. And Emily, you said that the no campaign were shy about yes. giving you material? Yeah. or Not necessarily. Well, we've, we've not been able to have find anyone from the no campaign who's been willing to join our steering group. Um, and this has been a, an issue that we've discussed extensively. As why do you believe group. that is so? Um, there's a, there's a, a range of thoughts about why that's so. Um, one is that some feel that the No campaign doesn't feel that their work is done, and so they're not ready to step into the space of wanting to archive and preserve that material. Um, some others that we feel that they may perceive that there's an imbalance on the committee itself, so we're actively looking to try and, and disabuse them of, of that notion because we are very keen to include the No campaign with what they're doing, or with what we're doing. So we are trying still to, to outreach, and any representatives of the No campaign are more than welcome to join our group. As I say, the ambition of the group is to create and, and connect up archives of material related to the referendum. It's not a partisan group in, in and of itself. Yeah. Mona, you want? Uh, yeah, thank, thank you. It was really so interesting to hear about your work, uh, and uh, we have to talk more because <laughs> uh, I, I want just to, wanted to, to to tell you that uh, we have just uh, initiated uh, a project at the Women's Museum in Norway um, to do an international uh, collaboration about the history of abortion. Uh, and uh, to collect stories from all the member countries, uh, as many as possible <laughs> at least, uh, uh, in our international network. And of course, uh, we have to, uh, <laughs> to connect in some way, uh, and maybe that is also going to help us to raise uh, uh, fundings, necessary fundings for this. And I also think it's a very, very good idea the way you... Do you plan how to to make um, uh, to to make a, a web page telling about uh, where people can find the different uh, collections? Because that is also something that probably mm -hmm. would have to happen about women's history as well. Uh, we are at least we are doing trying to do that in Norway now because women's history, of course, is half the history, half of our national history, mm -hmm. and it's impossible to, for one institution to keep everything but uh, we can at least um, uh, try to make uh, a, a, an overview uh, for people to find uh, important uh, material so and Mona, in your case in Norway yeah. it's uh, it's a physical museum isn't it uh, we have a physical museum, of course, uh, we have, uh, and it's not in Oslo, it's 100 kilometers away from Oslo, um, uh, but we collaborate with uh, another, a lot of uh, international institutions, like the National Library, as you tell, like the, um, several other uh, international institutions, um, and it's also, I think it's the most important when you, when you come to this kind of things is to find a way uh, to collaborate, to join forces, not to have uh, a lot of um, small institutions trying to grab some uh, of the small finances that you have, because there are really not enough uh, <laughs> finance to do, to, do, to do what we are doing, uh, all of us here in this room but to try to find uh, good ways to collaborate so we can have good projects together. And that's why I think this, uh, this project over here is a very, very good one. Mm. And as the International Secretary, all museums are icebergs. They have a lot of material which they don't show and can't show because physically they collect it, but they can't show it. Do, how much of that relates to women, and can they be embarrassed or persuaded to, if they're hiding it or mm. just keeping it and doing nothing with it, can you guys get at it and give it a display space? 
Yeah, I think I think of course uh, that is. I think most uh, museums would be happy to 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 lend us things yeah. to this. As they should display. be, because they're they publicly yes. funded very often. Or yes, yes, uh, they, so they, they they should absolutely be it. And as but uh, also uh, um, a big task is to to educate <laughs> curators in the non-women museums. <laughs> Uh, to be more aware uh, and not, for instance, make this kind of texts as I showed you from the kitchen. Mm. Uh, it's like it's it's a it's a it's a way of thinking. I think that uh, it's not uh, it's not uh, only in male curators. It's as well in female curators because we are all grown up in this society. So it's uh, I think we have to keep on working and working and working to. Uh, to okay. educate okay. people. Okay, yeah. yes. So, Questioner down here. Yep. I, I will just say, um, Mona, on the, the Women's History Association are compiling a bibliography of everything that's been written on women's history in Ireland because I think there is an issue in regard to a lot of younger scholars. They may not be aware of what was conducted in the 70s and in the 80s, and they're more aware of the research in the last 10 years. So we need to ensure that the pioneering work that was done in the 1970s is getting acknowledged and that we don't have PhD students repeating or, you know, there's so many areas to be done. So I would agree that kind of a resource is really important. So. On the material thing as well, I think um, something that we've certainly experienced is that um, a lot of what is important to women's history is not considered important to national institutions. So we've been approached by several individuals in Ireland, um, but also in the States, who are massive private collectors of Irish women's um, textiles, like Mona said. So there is one woman um, who's been collecting Irish handmade lace in the States, and she has, she thinks, one of the biggest collections of it in existence. And so that's something that's obviously, there's a huge tradition of that. But it's remarkable that it hasn't occurred to anybody except for this one woman um, in New York State to, you know, to actually archive that and collect it. Would Similarly, there are collections in Limerick, say, or in, in there Car are. But uh, what I'm saying, like, so I, there certainly are, I think. But I think they're they haven't been prioritised as collectible items, you know, and that's where a lot of the private collectors who people are taking interest come in. And I think that's another thing is to give them a resource. We've been approached by several people asking us to, um, can they bequeath their uh, yes. collections to us? And we don't, we don't have the resources to archive and protect materials like that. And so there does have to be, I think, an awareness that there is somewhere to put this material where it's but going to be But the National Museum has a duty and is doing it, aren't they? The I would hope Museum so. Um, but it's interesting that we're being approached to collect yeah. that material and not the National Museum. I would just yeah. say also in defense of the national cultural institutions whose budgets were entirely decimated <laughs> during the recession, the National Museum of Ireland's budget dropped by 40% between 2008 and 2017, 4-0. And so we have to keep in mind as well that the acquisition budgets which are available to our cultural institutions have been decimated. And so what's wound up happening is that many sorts of grassroots and alternative ways of collecting and preserving information have had to be a supplement of activity. That's not to excuse that and, and to, to no, take no, the onus no. off national institutions, but to just reflect the reality that many organizations can't actively acquire and collect in the same way that you can within the private market and things like that. So we do need to think of alternative ways that we can supplement the histories and supplement the activity that the cultural institutions are unable to perform in some respects. Yes, somebody, yep, microphone here, yep. Um, I'd just like to thank the whole panel, it's extremely interesting and it's something that's a particular bugbear of mine, I'm old enough 
I've lived through a lot of it. Um, by the way, I'm not 100. And um, it was just when you said there even about collecting, and while I would agree with you about the national institutions, there's also an aspect of which is, we're back to, is their choice as to what they consider important and what they don't. Mm-hmm. And even about the test- textiles or about the linens. Oh, well, yeah, we know that's women's stuff, mm-hmm. but sure, that's okay. We can stick that in a glass over there and be all right. Yeah, we just... really should take out some of those spades, the turf cutting thing, because they may be more valuable. Mm-hmm. I do have a background in archaeology as well, so I do actually understand about the spades. Eston Evans might have a, a disagreement with you about, about the value of spades. But, um. uh, yeah, no, but that's their point, is ha- their choices in what they do, and therefore the women very often do come down. And what you were saying, John, about some of the items that are indeed held by the national institutions, where families have actually given them some of the stuff, we know it's still boxed. And the only way sometimes to get it is to have the families go back in and say, we actually need to see it. So there is a lot to be said for us as the public going into the institutions and saying, oh, and where, have you got anything on this or whatever? Nicely and politely, but if you keep asking, they will eventually bring it out, and we do need more funding. I think, you know, I think also initiatives like the National Treasures Exhibition, it's very useful, I think, in also indicating that there was a wide public interest and appetite also in the histories and lives of ordinary people, something that most national museums aren't always great at collecting. Even within our own national museum, Section or the way that it's it's organized, most of that material is in the Museum of Country Life, which is in Mayo. Yeah. You know, it's in Castle Bar. It's a little harder to get to, um, and that's a historical quirk in terms of the way that the National Museum itself has developed. It's also worth noting, though, that for the first time, the National Museum of Ireland has a female director and also a non-archaeologist as a director. So I would expect to see also there's a lot of sea changes happening within the museum profession itself, and I think a lot of that recalibration of the type of histories that are, collect, are collected by the national institutions is already underway, and I, I would, aim, I would I'd be entirely expect to see that amplifying in the future. Yeah. Sinead? Yeah, just to, just to point out, just in relation to... Um, what Emily has just said there, I suppose what I'd say to you first, the quirk about the National Museum being in Castle Bar is a political decision because that was Enda Kenny um, who wanted to diversify the museums um, within Ireland. Um, and I also think it's important to um, think about the now. And as I said earlier on in relation to what you were doing, because our minister was spearheading that campaign for her political organisation, that was a, you know, an interest of hers, but, they, but it was the Yes campaign. So what, what I feel in terms of it, in terms of funding, funding streams, and I'm very mindful that I ended up with a funding stream to produce what we have done um, in this complex, um, which is some, a, a funding stream that's gone in that direction, maybe not into a national cultural institution or something else. So it's, it's very difficult at times, as you know yourself, even with an RTE where, where an interest lies. I suppose what I would be very conscious of and very promoting of in, in, this, in this setting is particularly is the younger women and the, and the, the, the use of the tool which is the marketing tool which is Twitter and what I would say about it is, is the, everybody within structures and allocations and fundings uh, uh, streams are always looking at what is the widest appeal, how they can attach the, 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 the most of the people so you're always going to get individual collectors who do clusters of collecting and anyone even the, in the British Museum is founded on one man's collection so what I think about it is I think where, where, we, where this is important 
is to keep thinking about the collective and the network to try and say, what one thing are we going to try and do and then hope that things will come for it. What I find a lot of the time is, it, is because we're doing women, women is half the population, and so that's such a big umbrella that, that, so, you know, to, to, to decide what best to do with that story. And prompt, prompting that it happen is as important as necessarily doing it yourself. I mean, there's a lot of money, in, there's a lot of cost involved in this whole area, mm-hmm. a lot of cost, and there's a lot of money floating around, and you cannot exaggerate the self-importance of the multinationals and the, the moneyed men and the banks and all these. The, the banks might even have a building that they're embarrassed of still having. It'll be a very good building because the farmers in the 19th century wouldn't put their money into a building that didn't look as if it couldn't be got at. And now they're all snooker holes and they're fast food joints and so on. Now, I'm just thinking that very often creative thinking and embarrassing the corporate social groups to keep them at arm's length but take their money. Is that a a policy? (laughs) Can I just say that you're probably curious why I I talked a lot about the Jackie Clark and the building of a museum. What, What I wanted to say there was... I had to change my agenda in order to be able to make it sustainable. So it's a local community museum run by volunteers through social schemes. And what I would say to you is... You said it's a coffee shop as well. People can go and meet there. Yeah, they can can do it, but it's a place for the community and and a garden and schools and all of that. Sometimes you don't get exactly what you want. You get a variation on that. And what I would say to you is... It's, it's 30 years since um, Monica Barnes wanted a women's museum. We have a pop-up for six weeks in a space that's next to the Chester Beatty. And what, what I would say to you about, even in relation to archiving the 8th, is visibility, visibility, visibility is what you said. And I would say to all of you, um, you have the tools in your hands and your phones, but I would say to you that, that we only have this moment where, this moment, this year, we've made a huge noise in relation to it, don't let it be another wave. I always think about feminism being you know, the way, wave, they always talk about wave of feminism, um, and then to, to capitalise on that. Yeah, Mona? Yes, um, and I say, um, well, congratulations with a fabulous exhibition. Uh, I really, I, I'm impressed about it, uh, and I also feel like crying when I think that it's six, six weeks only and then they're going to take it away. Uh, I mean, really, this should be uh, the start of a physical uh, Irish Women's Museum. I think that, uh, yeah, uh, but, at but, least, yeah. But just to say to you in terms yeah. of this, right, this discussion for me is about, is about a discussion of whether that's wanted or whether that's needed. Mm-hmm. And if you look at women who are in politics, they're doing a job, for the most part, for half of the, of the exhibition. So what I think is really important to say back to people here is, is not about, it's about a lobby, it's a need, it's a want. Mm-hmm. So, so is there a need for um, a, a museum regarding the Magdalene laundries, the, 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 the dark history? And, or is it a need to say that we need to celebrate power and women who have succeeded within, within an environment? And I suppose those questions can be and, you know, explored over lunch and individually, but I suppose I'm throwing it out to people to think, to, it's thought, it, to, to think yourselves, because we all have a different opinion about what we want or what we need. <coughs> Okay, yes. Some. And I'm Saoirse Brown from Kingston University. And 
you were, I was very interested that you were talk, bringing up the point about the National Museum and Country Life because I'm curating an exhibition that's going to be opening next summer in Castlebar in the National Museum there about women and electric appliances and the role of rural electrification and modernity in the home, all of these issues that's going to be opening in next July. But and is that going to be a permanent exhibition? In, it's going to be open for a year. It's a temporary exhibition. Okay. And it's longer than six weeks, yeah. but it's still not yeah. permanent. Yeah. And it, it's really interesting to see that there's this development, this mo momentum for having much more permanent collections, permanent spaces, and permanent exhibitions. But just I wanted to throw in the point that the funding that I had brought to that exhibition, I had I'd actually come from the British universe, uh, University Research Council because I worked for a British university. But that's one possible funding stream that is, it's not a very easy one to access, but it is, it is there. But I think one of the things that struck me from a lot of the discussion here that's very, very important is the continuing the communication and the work, like, for example, that Emily was doing on making sure that everybody who's working on a, one topic knows where all the material is. That's really, really, really important, and it's to keep that momentum going, I think, is between everybody here and anybody who's you know, following on Twitter to try and actually work towards having a permanent space to start looking at these different aspects of women's lives in Ireland. I think there's two Thank things you. there, Saoirse. I mean, one, I think, is there's the, the debate over whether women's history needs or whether it's, it's the, there is a potential for a permanent space. And the other is about diversifying narratives within our existing cultural institutions, which is what you're talking about. And I would say as well that, like the work that you've been doing on the electrification, there's a huge amount of incredibly exciting scholarship about Irish political and social life revolving around the role of women and translating that to the public sphere, translating that to the public history sphere is not an easy task to do, but the cultural organizations are so open to this. Whether it's your local authority museum, whether it's the National Museum, they always welcome sort of pitches and conversations about the potential of doing things like this. As you know, it takes years for these kinds of things to, to be realized and whatnot, but I don't, I don't want folks to come away from this room with the perception that there is a there's a wall or a block between yourself and the cultural institutions in terms of their openness. We all have funding issues. We all are often, almost museum exhibitions have to be co-funded in some way at this point in time, but they're open and they're willing to kind of take in these narratives. And they're aware of the imbalance of existing collections and interpretation. And I think that's a really important thing to acknowledge how hard the museum sector, I mean, for, as I say, I've been running the Museums Association conference um, for the last 10 years, and this has been a constant topic of conversation and debate and presentation. So it's not something we're not aware of as a sector as well. Okay. Any other? Yes, gentleman here. Just a quick question for Mona. Thanks so much for your really interesting presentation um, about the whole international context. And you had said that there was about 85 or so women's museums around the world. Um, and it seems that from your presentation, from looking at a few of them, many of them started out as kind of grassroots initiatives where people saw there was a gap and that this wasn't happening and tried to fill it themselves. And I'm wondering, of that 85, roughly how many um, in those cases have a, has the government or state agencies actually stepped in and said, okay, this is an initiative we think is valuable. Here's even some money to try and keep it going, to try and make it sustainable and not just funded by kind of voluntary work and voluntary organizations. I don't, um, thank you for the question. Yeah, I, um, 
I don't have the exact number, uh, but there are quite uh, quite a few uh, museums that have uh, received uh, support or from the state uh, national support or from uh, local governments or regional governments. um, there are also some uh, very, very uh, poor, uh, poor grassroots movements, like more like you explained in the, of the survey that I'm not really sure is completely uh, adequate to the, the numbers that you, you, you gave because it was a survey that was, um, well, uh, it's, it's old, and, um, but it, it has said something because if you have one museum with very, very poor, <laughs> of course, uh, income, uh, it, it um, changes the whole <laughs> average. Uh, um, but uh, some, uh, some museums uh, in Asia, for instance, uh, we have quite a few uh, museums uh, that has received quite a lot of support from government. Uh, which could be good and which can also be a little, um, I mean, uh, can um, put some limits on you, uh, depending on what kind of government you have, of course. <laughs> uh, and um, and uh, we have some in, in Europe, for instance, my, um, in Norway, we, we have uh, state support and we have very much backing uh, from uh, governments, uh, at least at, an, at, the, at the national level. Um, not a lot of money, but a lot of support, I would say. Uh, and uh, in the US, uh, there are some some with a lot of uh, support, but of course in the US, you have uh, more, uh, they're more used to fundraising, more than we uh, in, in Europe. And private to. philanthropy yeah. as well. Yeah. Very big in mm. America. Yeah. So, uh, so we, we do have some. Mm. Uh, so it's it, it actually we have a very vast, a very uh, varied uh, members um, members in our organisation. Some are really really struggling. <laughs> Every like in Ukraine, uh, they, we have um, a woman that um, made a women's museum in her own apartment in an apartment. Uh, uh, and with no money at all, uh, only giving of her time, uh, and now she finally got some uh, resources. I'm very happy for her. Uh, and then we have uh, an institution like in Denmark, when they they have really a big, uh, a lot of people, a lot of staff, uh, and. Uh, have succeeded quite well, same as in, in Vietnam, a very big museum, a lot of staff, 40 staff members, so a very big variety. Mm. I think, and I think what the point that Emily made is that there, there is a huge interest here, both at institutional level and public level, in terms of supporting women's museums and women's history projects. I know, for instance, um, you know, for new initiatives, um, there is a danger, I suppose, is that sustainability is an issue. So, for instance, in Bonn, I know that as the um, representation has um, and the administration has changed in the city of Bonn, the uh, support, financial support for the museum has fluctuated hugely right down to them being almost closed down in, you know, in one year and then five years later being supported. And that is where there is an argument, like John brought up, is that is there a role for um, private institutions and private companies to support that. That's something certainly that the Women's Museum of Ireland has explored in the past, and but we have been reticent, I suppose, to commit to it because that comes with its own set of um, restrictions. And the main one being that often um, you're expected to 
in some way become profit-making or sustainable in that way. And I think certainly for Women's Museum um, of Ireland and for Women's History Projects in Ireland, I think it's pretty essential that they remain a free resource um, for people, that there isn't a financial barrier there. Um, And so you have things like Epic, obviously that's doing really well and that's privately funded, but it's not... Um, I don't think it's feasible at the moment for a women's history project to operate in that way because I think it's essential that it remains like a free educational resource and that's where the barrier comes to getting private investment in that way. Okay, I'm going to uh, close it there. Um, At the risk of being accused of mansplaining, I'm going to speak for one minute. And that is just to mention one thing. Some of the material that needs to be captured is very difficult to capture. An oral history project could do it. And I'll give you an example. A few years ago, I wrote a history of RTE television. And it was only when I had written it, that, and I was speaking about it, that I, this particular point came to me, because it, it's not in the book. And that is that in the 1970s, on television, the question about... I'm talking about the history of contraception and, and social change and legislative change in Ireland and practice. In the 1970s, the question asked on television about contraception was, first, is it a sin? Five years later, is it a crime? And five years later, surely it's a civil right. Now, that is 10 years. That question changed. That was the predominant question on programming during that very fast 10 years. And in the middle of that on radio, I was speaking to a man called Dr. Barry O'Donnell, who's a pediatrician. At the time, he was president of the Irish Medical Association, you won't believe this, the British Medical Association, and the Canadian Medical Association in the one year. Why that is, I don't know. But the pen fell from my hand and was live when he said, it's time we had a debate about contraception. And I just couldn't believe my ears. And I now realise why he was saying it. He was saying it because he was behind the curve and the tide had changed and he... He had just copped, the medical profession copped on, because at the time, contraception was being driven by four groups, all men, many of them beyond, I was going to say beyond uh, childbearing age, but (laughs) the doctor, it was being driven by the doctors, the bishops, the lawyers, and the politicians, and they were all behind the curve, because what was actually happening was that Irish women were making medical history by being on the pill and having the most irregular cycles in the Western world. They were, de- they were deceiving their doctors or themselves or their husbands by all being on the pill. They were making world medical history. So the behavior was actually ch- had changed. Now, how could you capture that? How could you re- research that? Because it won't be, it won't be in the newspapers. If we, it, it, and yet it is, the, it is something of the part of women's history in that. Now, that decade is... 1970s, the people who went through that in their life, childbearing years, are getting older. And unless the, you can interview the women on the 8th, you can interview them now. But unless these women are captured, unless that is, is shown and changed. John Bonner is one very interesting example, by the way, on that. Because he, it, I'm quoting him when I'm saying about the, the, the uh, world medical history by the, the irregular cycles and so on. That's his point. But anyway, I just mentioned that as one of these kind of very important social changes which had happened, and women had driven that social change by their own behavior. And and there's a lot of evidence, if you look at the statistics of the use, and and if you look at the 
census of 1971 and 81, and you can, there's a lot of evidence buried and built into that. So I just throw that out, Anil. Thank you very much. Thanks also to the team behind. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Why Not a Woman? Celebrating Women in Public and Private Life in Ireland, 1918 to 2018. The Women's History Association of Ireland's annual conference for 2018. For more information on the association, check out the website at womenshistoryassociation.com.